destroying the entire universe. Free Deimos, an Ixendraconis fan podcast broadcasting from a post-Deimos orbit on Voltaire Station. This week's episode is episode 42, Big M is Watching You. And with me, as almost always, are my co-hosts Ashtar and Wines. Hello. And I'm Corbeau. This week's Breathable Air is brought to you by Marsco's Secret Menu, featuring mind control lasers, phase wave munitions, neutronium compression inducers, and maybe we've said too much. The previous examples were a joke. None of these actually exist. Oh, I'll edit them out in post. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about Marsco's catalog and Marsco products, and I want to ask the question none of us really want to address. <laughs> What's your favorite flavor of compressed nutrient Unimil bar? Well, that's easy. Z- zebra cheese stripes bar. Oh, that's nice. I like the color pattern on that. Mm-hmm. It's really pleasing. Yeah. Is that zebra cheese or zebra and cheese? <laughs> No, it's it's zebra fla- flavored fake protein meat. Oh yeah, along with cheese right? Okay, I like cadmium yellow. I don't know what flavor it is, but that's what it's called, and it's really kind of appealing. Does it glow? It sounds like it would glow. Um, it does under black light. Yes. <laughs> Turkey pineapple cheesecake, smooth and delicious. Oh, it's fried out of Willy Wonka. <laughs> Subtle hints of FDNC ride number five. <laughs> Can anything that big hide for so long a time? Yeah. I wonder what their next move will be. What's new from the world of Ixodraconis? Uh, not a lot of new releases this week, or this month, but Pierce did do an overhaul of the Ixodraconis YouTube channel, which has a lot of actual play game sessions, test sessions for 2.0, and at least two designer chat sessions, which uh, have a lot of neat material on what 2.0 is going to become, questions and answers from the field, that sort of thing. Oh, and if you are on the Ixun Draconis Discord channel, and if you're a fan of the game, you really should be, he's set up a little sub-channel just for asking questions about the game universe. I've been stealing from it copiously for our show. So those are some things you can look at if you want to get... uh, a sneak preview of what's coming over the next six months or so. A lot of stuff on the horizon, but mostly in like December at this point. It has taken you centuries to even grasp what we developed eons of your years ago. News from the Radio Free Deimos world. I recently updated the timeline of all Ixundraconus history. It's a very unofficial document. But we've got some fun plugins that make it kind of an animated and browsable experience with like subcategories that we'll dig into the history of, say, Marsco or Ganymede or something. It's been realigned with the canon timeline from Song and S- from Sound and Silence. I will never get that name right. And also incorporates a lot of material from 2.0's leaked lore and some kind of madman's ravings on my own part. Theoretically, it's color coded to show what's canon and what's uh RFD non-official drivel, but the plugin has been giving me some real difficulty in having any sort of control over what color things are. So right now it's not color coded and you have to guess what's fact and what's fiction and what's faction. Beige and ecru. White and white. I was going with three shades of gray myself. Mm-hmm. 50's just too complicated. This is the most fantastic story I've ever heard. And every word of it's true too. So once in a while, we'll waste time, air, our lives. (laughs) Yeah, all those things. Uh, But uh, specifically, I'll waste our time talking about Sunday's games. This time around, I want to talk about the subject of analysis paralysis, which I feel is very germane to recent events. (laughs) Yeah. We've temporarily put down our Exendraconis Sunday game and are sharing a joint Werewolf the Apocalypse story between myself and Wines. Right now, Wines is GMing. And 
and partly it's because I think that I'm co-GMing and am playing in a world that I designed, I have been totally unable to make a single decision in the game. And mm. it's really disturbing. Well, I think also probably because you don't want to dominate. I mean, this is a role-playing game that you have a long back history with. It would be very easy for you to simply say, oh, I know it. I know everything. Let me just take charge. Well, and I do, and that's just a universal trait. Right, I mean, right. That's me and, and hairless dogs in general. Right. We're a very knowing breed. But beyond that, I think the table has this, this kind of an endemic disease anyway, and I'm playing a character that's more of a beta and less of an alpha, so it's really just hit me with this kind of crippling inability to move forward at all, to the point right. where I may have to throw away this character. Right, and, and we have a lot of new, new players, new to pen and paper RPGs. And that's really tough. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's hard to sit at a table and know when are you allowed to talk? What are you allowed to do? And they're all being really good at not doing disruptive things. But <laughs> or, or indeed anything. And, and that's all of us right now. Right. And again, it, it, it's hard. Even as an experienced player, you can just get in a place where I don't know what to do. And I don't want to do something stupid. So I'm just not going to do anything except stare at the people across the table. And a whole bunch of staring goes on. So I, I got the phrase analysis paralysis from a really great book. It's Things We Think About Games, which is a bunch of little game design nuggets from Robin Laws, Kenneth, Kenneth Height, who I worship as a god on earth, John Kavalik, S. John Ross. The list is, is huge. Uh, these are big names in, in gaming and game design. And they put together this little book that's basically like little almost haiku about gaming concepts. Mm -hmm. One thing they have is a couple of pages on, well, what is analysis paralysis? Uh, if you are in a tabletop game and you're really just freaking out at the possibility of losing, which whatever that means, is that dying? Is that not getting your time in the spotlight? Or you're getting locked up and trying to outplay the game master as like this long-term game? Or you're just playing Magic the Gathering and you've been spending five minutes looking at two cards in your hand? That's analysis paralysis. And... In practice, it's probably more fun just to take the plunge, take an action. Like Toon says, when in doubt, roll and shout. But people are, well, people can be very timid about doing anything that they think will cost the table in some strange cosmic sense. Sure. And speaking as somebody with a background in wargaming, that happens too. Um, people, and in a wargame, it's simpler. It's just you. Um, I mean, you are totally in control of your side. Well, the kind of. The war games I'm thinking about are the competitive ones where it's one player versus one player. You're not holding up your team. It's just you while the other person waits for you. Yeah. But especially newer players can fall into just being overwhelmed by the number of options and just they don't know what to do and they don't. I'm sorry. We've got all these English yeah. majors in the building and they're <laughs> really noisy. <laughs> they don't know what to do and they only want to make the right choice. And you can't always know. I mean, a a as an experienced gamer, you know, sometimes you're just winging it. It's like, oh, this looks plausible. And the later find it, okay, that was not the right idea, but you did it. And all those times that we kind of stomped on like some of the newbies at our table and just said, don't do that stupid thing, because what they were doing is really, really stupid. Like right. everybody's locking information and they cast ball of great explosion in the middle of the formation and blows everybody up. That's really dumb. Yeah. Or they go off and fight the invisible thing in the corner as opposed to focusing fire or something like that. It's just it's just silly and tactically unsound, but it's a decision. And if you start forcing them to second guess, you know, what the wisdom of the table would be, then they're going to go crazy and shut down. Yeah. Well, the wisdom of the table is not something that you want to encourage. People need to be free to make mistakes. But there is a there is a point where the the overall game mechanic wisdom can step in and say, whoa, that's that's not a bad idea. That is a disastrous idea but let's let's talk through this moment see if this is really what you're thinking this means well flip side there's also like five neurotic nerdy males sitting at the same table um, and that that creates a certain culture and sometimes that decision is exactly what the player thinks it is and that's actually what they wanted to do true we've we've probably all seen one or two of those you can also take that from Two other backgrounds that are kind of prone to that type of analysis paralysis. The the more social gamer or the more loner gamer that's coming into more of a social experiment is less likely to, say, rock the boat. 
mm-hmm. people that are looking for party consensus, people that are looking for group and social consensus before making waves fall into that analysis paralysis if nobody else is kind of taking the lead and breaking through, breaking the ice to, to set a path. And that will certainly lead a newer player or a more socially conscious player to not step forward and necessarily make the decision if everybody is kind of wiffle waffling around and not sure what they're doing. Yeah. Well, and there is no manual for how do you talk at a role playing table? I mean, you, you have to pick it up from interacting with other people. The, the, the notion that like one of our younger players, he's very enthusiastic. I love that. But he has the bad habit of he just has this great idea partway through someone's sentence. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, hey, can I do blah, 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 while someone else is talking? And I love these having ideas, but and he is slowly learning. Wait until the people aren't talking at, at that time, but but that's a dial. The whole wait until there's an opening. Everyone can kind of get that just turned so far that everyone's waiting. Nobody wants to be impolite, mm-hmm. and I, I, I say this because I'm totally guilty of it. <laughs> yeah. The other place that that. The other background that that can kind of come from is people that are coming from a computer gaming background, whether it's MMO or solo, can hit some of that same analysis paralysis because a computer game is very, very straightforward as a puzzle to be solved. There is an optimal path. There is a uh, preferred build. There, there is at some level, there, there, there is a guide out there that tells you the best way to approach and defeat the problem. There, if, there is a perfect play. And if you're not optimizing, someone out there is going to tell you you're doing it wrong. In Yes, um, that, that is definitely a thing that happens that many people wish did not happen, but <laughs> is unavoidable. Uh, more so in the social computer games. Uh, but the underline is, and, and that falls a little bit more on the social side as well, on the very mechanical computer game side that there is the, the there is the intended path to defeat the challenge and very often tabletop games are not necessarily set up that way yes there might be a way that the storyteller kind of intended you to work through the challenge there's there's probably two or three other ways that are acceptable paths and then there's probably a good half dozen ways that the storyteller didn't necessarily <laughs> think of or plan out but can roll with and still get you to the objective. And certainly for me, when I was first switching over from computer to tabletop games, and something that I've noticed in a lot of other people that are coming from a computer background, you kind of have to get over a certain realization of optimal is the only way. Right, right. You, you, you cannot, well, you can be optimal at the, compu- at the game table, but it's pretty <clears throat> boring. It's pretty boring just to win nonstop all the time with no setbacks and no challenges. That's not a that's not really a story that lets other people play in your story. So, right, and you don't want to be constantly telling other people it's like you're not doing it right. No, you need to take care of that monster so I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's impossible to not think it too. <laughs> There's the image of the adversarial game master. Do you remember that uh, that movie we saw? I think it was called Game Masters, if I'm not mistaken, or GMs, where they had like four. The, the British one or the Scottish one? No, no, that was a fiction. This was a documentary. A documentary. Oh, yeah, Game Masters. Yeah, yeah there yeah. was like four different game masters. And they were all kind of like a little bit <laughs> broken, maybe. Yeah, there was yeah. the, uh, the drow... Real life, right? Yeah, player. The, the, the lady that go to cons dressed up in her drow makeup, slowly coming off over the course of the con. Yeah, and then the the guy that bragged about how he like annihilated all of his players with a sphere of annihilation trap behind a, a door or something like that, and was like marking PC kills on his bedboard as some sort of badge of triumph. I, I feel like there's kind of that image of the game master, which is not thankfully not at our table, but they do uh-huh. exist. And it's the sense that the game master is the enemy is, is hard to shake. It's not true. And this creates the idea of losing, and there really shouldn't be losing in a tabletop game. Well, it is historically true. Gygaxian, late 80s, early mm, 90s, geez, yeah. adversarial GM, DM was the name of the game. Yeah, I guess Gygax himself would have probably been the, <laughs> the archetype of this. What's the wrestling word for the, the kind of 
not real kayfabe. Kayfabe. I wonder if that might be part of it because a, a GM that tells you upfront, it's like, oh, don't worry, I'm here as your your partner and telling a story. I, I won't let your characters die unless you want them to. Well, on one hand, that's very sweet. That's very supportive. On the other hand, what's the sense of of uh, satisfaction in, in succeeding against that whereas if the GM is like oh I'm going to kill you now even if that's not the truth truth, even if that's just the, the image they're representing from a kind of a male aggressive perspective that means that when your character wins like yeah I beat you you jerk <laughs> ouch I, I think that was almost a direct quote of me I'll, I'll just have to be much more aggressive next time <laughs> So one thing that uh, particularly the World of Darkness does, but a lot of more modern indie role-playing games do, is they say that you need to be aware that there are losing there are situations where the characters will not succeed. Let's not use the word lose, but uh-huh. they will not be successful in their dice rolls in their attempt to resolve the combat. And whatever that path is that their road takes needs to be entertaining, even if it's not successful. It needs to be rewarding. It needs to have RP opportunities built in. They've got, and the players need to be okay with a little bit of suffering for their characters. Right. And embrace that as like, well, we'll grow from this somehow. And I think that's a really hard place to get to because I don't want my little paper dolls to to lose. I want them to explode. Mm. (laughs) I want them to be corrupted by space viruses and warped into zombie monsters. I don't want them to fail, though. But you want it to be kind of your choice when they destroy themselves. Yeah, 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 exactly. It should be, they should be, they should die by their own, like, poetic flaws. That's a point made, like, the, the first RPG that I really got, got into playing with was the hero system, with the superhero role-playing. And one, one note they made about the genre is part of the superhero genre is being captured and death traps. And they say, everyone knows this. Everyone knows that's part of the superhero genre. But they say... Players hate oh, it. Oh, they fight they so hard. absolutely hate it and will just yeah. not relent. And even right. the GM stops and says, you know, you're going to have a chance to get out. It's like, my character wouldn't be taken. Well, that, like, well, that phrase, <laughs> my character wouldn't, my character wouldn't this. Yeah. My, my character can't fail in that manner. Uh, how do you, I, I can't get away from it. And I, you know, I'm doing this for, God, 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that that's a thing that at least it occurs to us to tell to new players uh, is don't have a character you love so much. Have a character that you, that you have a little bit of distance from that you're willing to see suffer amusingly or yeah, because because your character should not be you or you should not have that that level of investment. If your character can be you and you can just kind of shrug when your character is fails or dies or is taken is taken captive, then good for you. But a lot of us have problems with that. Right. And some of the harder characters we've had to play against the table have been someone's like favorite paper doll. Right. And that's really hard to deal with. And probably harder for them to have things... Th- There's not a verb form of what I was trying to say, but it'd be harder for them to deal with threats against that character as well. Unless uh-huh. they're the right flavor of threat. <sighs> anyway... I do strongly recommend that people... Oh, wait. Before I anyway, is there more that you want to say on this that would be helpful? I can talk about this forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paralysis, which is where we came from. I, I think we strayed enough off of that. Anyway, I do encourage people to pick up a copy of Things We Think About Games. Uh, we will have a link to it on the show notes. And remember, if you buy it through that link, we'll get a small kickback, which you can put towards more HSD product for our table. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So this week we're wrapping up our detailed coverage of Big M with uh, Marsco conspiracy theories and alternate readings. And I've been sitting on some of this stuff since we were talking about Marsco history. I'm really excited by this because it's it's the mother of all Illuminatis. It's been around for 700 years and controls so much of daily life in Seoul. How can you not have 30 different conspiracy theories about what it's up to, why it does the things it does, and... You think you can be done talking about Marsco? It'll creep into other topics, I'm sure, but we have to move on to ASR soon. So I want to start with uh, four kind of canon, canon doubt and uncertainties. These are written up in HSD 1.0, under the Marsco section in the lore. It's kind of, these are, I, these are uh, 
commonly shared theories and myths and urban legends about Big M mm-hmm. that have been a part of uh, of the lore book that have been a part of uh, game lore. I remember actually some conversations breaking out on the on the HSD Discord chat where people were convinced that what they read about in the secret conspiracy theories about Marsco was the truth, like Marsco spun off Progenitus, that we had to stop and actually look at the world and say, no, wait, that's just a raving madman's theory, not actually, quote, true, unquote. So canon fiction number one, Marsco does not exist anymore. It's been split up between the other major powers and is the universe's biggest cover story. Has that been debunked yet? I don't know. Um... (laughs) I don't know, has it? <laughs> Wines hasn't read the books. <laughs> For the last two years, we've been talking about things that he doesn't actually know that much about. I think yes and no. It's Marsco's in kind of a quiet time right now. It's not very active. So in a sense, yeah, it is kind of background material. And that gives the players more agency, perhaps. It makes the other corporations shine a little bit better. But... I think we can neither confirm nor deny this one. Marsco controls way too much capital on finance flow. There's, it can't not exist. Well, if a product is made by a farmed out subsidiary and then assembled by a different group under a brand name, which may have changed hands, <laughs> is it really a that brand name product? I mean, it's kind of a philosophical question, isn't it? This kind of links up to canon conspiracy theory number two, uh, three rather, which is that Marsco may or may not exist, but it's running on inertia and old algorithms and formulas and dusty AIs that are making the same conservative decisions for 500 years now. I think you can make a, a strong case for that because of, um, well, of Sentry, the AI behind all of Marsco's activities. And then Marsco is really, really sleeping right now. It's up until like maybe three years ago in game setting, it's been in a period of deep slumber. It really hasn't acted much since like 500 AE. You can definitely make a stronger case for that than the giant conspiracy theorist nothing exists argument which obviously I don't put much stock into. So we started with, um, you were arguing that it was a more, more viable. So first off, this is a podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Well, this up may all be the a way. podcast. Okay. I mean, this, this has the potential to become a podcast, but at the moment it's not quite a podcast yet. Welcome to episode 42 of Radio Free Demos, <laughs> and Nick Sintracona's fan podcast broadcast. No, you were talking about how that's a more viable conspiracy theory than that it doesn't exist anymore. The idea that it's running on fumes. Corporations, especially that large and that mature, can just run on fumes. Uh, when we were talking about some of the other parts of Marsco, we were talking about some of the board or the CEO levels of Marsco might just not bother to do anything because they have such staggering amounts of wealth that it just doesn't matter anymore. Well, that kind of, that kind of attitude of the board or the CEO or the executive circle just going, eh, whatever, I'm rich. Well, Marsco is actually blessed by having more than one board of directors. That must make things run very smoothly <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Would definitely translate or reflect back down through the rest of the corporate structure in a kind of lassitude of, eh, whatever. Money's coming in. We're good. You got resources. Don't expect feedback from your boss, though. Business is good. Why change? Conspiracy theory number two is that there is only Marsco in the universe and nothing else exists. How is that even a conspiracy theory? Uh, it's a... <laughs> we'll call that more... <laughs> We'll call that more of an urban myth then. Um, not debunked by the books. There is theoretically Progenitus, Spyglass, maybe TTI. Those are people that have broken away from Marsco's. That's what they'd like you to think. Yeah, I mean, not under their direct control. Certainly Spyglass would tell you otherwise. Would Spyglass even know? We well, haven't gotten to Spyglass, so I retract that question, but still. Okay, so Spyglass is may or may not be under Mars, Marsco's control. But the PCs Corporation is definitely free from Marsco's influence, right? Because they're the torchbearers. No? He who has the money has the power. 
Okay. And Marsco has all the money. That's true. They invented the concept of money in Seoul, actually. <laughs> they, and the ledger, in fact. And what brand name parts are the party using? Probably some Marsco parts. Yeah, you can't really escape it, particularly the spaceships. I mean, thankfully, my like headgear is from ASR Inc., which is no longer a Marsco subsidiary. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. Now, these are the lies we tell ourselves. The winner writes the history books. And we all know Mars Co. wrote the history books. That's true. Um, Ergo. Final canon conspiracy. Mars Co. is secretly run by humans. See, I like that one. That's one of those conspiracies that you just cannot disprove ever. It's also the only one that's really been like thoroughly debunked by the books because they go into <laughs> so much detail on how humans have been exterminated from the solar system. Which is exactly the type of cover you would put on top if you were actually being run by humans. Right, right. The real truth is that the humans are all on longbow. All of those ferals are actually the human pets protecting the humans. What do you think? You buy it? It's like a five-mile-wide city in space. Yeah? I'm not not buying it. Okay, okay. But on a slightly more serious note, yeah, you could put, could put humans on a grotto somewhere secretly controlling Mars Co., but that'd be kind of hard to do. Or not. I don't know. That's up to your canon. Your, that's up to your campaign. There are a couple of unusually dark periods in Mars Co.'s history that I just want to call out, because if you're going to ground a solid conspiracy theory in Big M, these are the times to do it. Uh, you know, the humans could have really advanced holographic belts. They could be wearing vector skins and just walking around amongst all of us right now. Do you remember when we were doing the actual play game and I wanted to have my character wearing purely holographic clothing and Sev told me that it could not, that that was not how holographic technology worked and I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. He was covering it up Mm -hmm. because I couldn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can't they put the holograms in your skin now? Yeah, they can. In, in like, uh, in December. So you don't even need a belt. Right. No, you totally reform those holograms. Humans are walking around naked every day under their holograms. So if, 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 you, weave, <laughs> if you weave your fur into a, into a fabric, are you naked? <laughs> I'm sorry, is this off topic? <laughs> I just don't have a response. Is it more or less off, off topic? <laughs> so age of conspiracy number one would be the what I'm thinking of as the culling times, also the shadow war, which covered very deeply in this entire episode is going to be so loaded with spoilers that if you are worried at all about spoiling the game's deep lore, please just go play this American life right now. At this point, they're up to episode 7,368. Well, 708 E. Oh, I see. Yeah. You have to buy into the, as a joke, you have to buy into the conceit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you only have to episode 2000 right now. <laughs> So uh, looking at Mars Co. slash Mars history, from about 20 AE onward to about 80 AE or so, there is a subtle war being waged between humans and vectors for dominance of the system. And in the the sweet history that Mars Co. gives us all, uh, we believe that, you know, the humans benevolently step backwards and let this new race that they created take over as their ordained children. But there's a lot of evidence, say, the master's voice, um, the weird discrepancies in population numbers and things like that, the total lack of any actual historical tapestry that vectors can draw from that suggests that this is not entirely true. And in Sound and Silence, they show kind of this low-grade war between the humans trying to maintain their dominance over the corporation and the vectors exiling them, forcing them to convert to hemivectors uh, and ultimately leading the entire the entire last human family quote unquote to Terra where they died and that last human family when you look at it in 1.0 which is written largely from the vector point of view is oh it's like Timmy and mom and you know they're probably not their dog and like a small camp of people and scientists going to investigate Terra but when you look in when you read in Sound and Silence it's 500 people 1000 people it's not the last human family, it's the last humans. So there's a gradual arc of humanity being forced out to make way for vectors and to make way for vector control over Marsco. 
that I think defines this early like 20 to 80 to like 120 time. During that time, the Shadow Presidency was created. Um, the various corporations spun off from each other. There's some tools that spread dominance of the corporate structure to the masses in, in ways that are kind of positive. And other ways you can see them kind of pulling power away from a solid board of directors to put it in more in vector hands. Uh, I can't justify that one in, in, in 500 words or less or more. I think the next period that kind of defines Marsco and is uh, next period that kind of defines Marsco's interaction with the current world is its period of silence, which starts in about 450 AE, probably a little after Venus was terraformed, which was just amazing and quote the most awe-inspiring act of the, the biggest public relations stunt ever. Hmm. Uh, I personally think it's when the god pharaoh of Marsco, the CEO that declared himself god, cropped up. It's a little after IRPF starts taking over governing the system from like a day-to-day law and order perspective. Around that time, Marsco kind of pulls back from its watchdog perspective and lets other people take over as the dominant movers and shakers of soul. So this is a period where Marsco really kind of chooses to fade away. It doesn't die. It's still raking in the money, but it's no longer taking direct action. And until about 485 AE or 500 or so thereabouts. This is shortly after Whispers destroy Luna Station and we start to have evidence that the Whispers can spread through magic, dark blood powers, transcendent, whatever. We can't really know how they spread, so Marsco locks down all of Soul's transportation. This creates kind of this recession period from like 585 to maybe what, 485 to maybe 500, where shipping lanes are shut down, traffic to Ganymede, traffic to Ganymede in Europa stops. Those two colonies become really desperate because a lot of their lifeline has been cut. Um, the mega corporation Stellarum, which makes its living off of shipbuilding, dies. Marsco buys it out later on. Venus gets very distant from Mars. Everybody's afraid of everybody else. And for maybe 10 years, this dark age reigns of limited communication, deep paranoia, and Marsco has a major hand in just shutting down Sol entirely. That may be the last time it really flexes its muscles, but I think the echoes of that linger on in Sol's history to create a lot of the kind of isolationist communities that you get on Mars and Venus, the sense that those are other communities that were not like a unified Sol anymore. So I think if you want to build a strong Marsco conspiracy, those are three points that it's worth looking at in terms of when the company acted not benevolently when it when it went to war. Mm-hmm. You say that these are some places where Marsco acted not benevolently, but that really becomes a question of perspective. In a certain sense, Marsco recreated society from the ground up, from literally the dust on Mars and the scattered remnants of a civilization that promptly self-destructed. They most likely understand the society that they've created at a much deeper level, a much longer view level than unarguably anyone else in the system, because there really is no one else in the system, both at the time and in later years. So you, you could, if you look at this Maybe from a longer term perspective, what we're calling disruptions, what we're calling cruel events or kind of putting their foot down might simply be Marsco taking the long view and looking out for the overall health of vector society as a whole. Or the profit margin, which is pretty much the same thing. Which is exactly the same thing. Continuing in the Marsco as disruptors theme, vectors can't be too happy or too efficient. That's actually pretty bad for business. You need a certain amount of chaos. You need a certain amount of churn. You need a certain amount of problems within society for the mega corporations, for the corporations to exist as eternal problem solvers. If there's not a demand, there's no need for the supply. Hmm. So this is kind of the churn theory of economics or just like you have to have a bare minimum sustainability level of resources for someone to succeed and then a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit less to make them strive. 
Well, let me illustrate that with a micro example. It's this and this is little is, mouse. <laughs> that there is okay. Uh, that there's a micro mouse. He works at Marsco, and his job is to go out and ensure that people just don't understand that the household waste that they generate could actually just be fed right back into the 3D bioprinters to print out new food and water and the basics of life. Instead, that household trash actually has to be, you know, manually carted out to a pickup place, which then gets transported to a recycling center that does the exact same thing. It feeds into a industrial-sized bioprinter that pulls everything out and 3D prints blocks of different types of nutrient paste that then can be sold back to the consumers to fuel their household 3D bioprinters. None of this is required, and it's vastly inefficient, but it's good for business. I mean, ultimately, business is all there is. <laughs> And, and the exact that at a at a micro example, what happens when you take Marsco with that kind of perspective and zoom that out to a society as a whole is are there places within vector society that could become more efficient where people could be happier, healthier, live longer? Yes, Progenitus kind of existed finding a place where that went completely wrong and somewhat set it to right. So, chalk this up with a conspiracy theory. Marsco doesn't want you to be happy. Hmm. Marsco wants you to be just unhappy enough to strive to be better and to spend money. Well, and that kind of attitude creates the churn of the corporate fights, the, the not blood feuds, the hot zones, um, the rivalries between many corporations, um, Anything that's worth questing after for a PC, you could argue, is a result of them responding to that we are not in a post-scarcity economy. Okay, so Big M does not love you. Well, I think we knew that. <laughs> Big M does not even love its board members. <laughs> so a variation on the Marsco controls everything and secretly is everything theory is that a lot, and this is, I think, backed up in sound and silence in small ways, is that ultimately everything is either a Marsco subsidiary, a Marsco affiliate, or one of the companies that got together and made up Marsco. In the story, there were three Marsco companies that got together, and then kind of weirdly three companies that broke off from Marsco. Uh, but it might have been a lot more than that, because in 2.0, Pierce Fraser indicates that, in fact, every Terran company that survived in any meaningful way did so by pledging its allegiance to Marsco, and that's how they made the jump to Mars. I guess the hemivector process kind of backs that up as only like worthy people made the transition to cat girl and made it to Mars. That's a very nationalistic turn of phrase for corporations banding together. Pledging allegiance to? Uh, my words, not Pierce's, but I think you can kind of argue that, that that's that they rallied under Marsco's banner. Entered into a bonding contract with? Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Facilitated mm -hmm. a sale of shares for... <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, there was nothing for a time, probably like 30 AE or so, there was nothing that was not Marsco. And the entire corporate world allied behind Marsco right up to the point where Terra went foom. So almost definitionally, something involved in Marsco invented the Pale Men. Marsco is? Something that is a Marsco facility probably downloaded Hydra originally, creating a broadband connection between Earth and Europa, and then sudden, then that same organization or some related organization released Hydra into the wild, uh, which destroyed all of Terran civilization. The Save Them memo was probably created by some, was probably sent by a, if not then, then soon Marsco agency, and perhaps that same corporation jumped to Mars and went on into, uh, to start writing soul history after Earth fell. No matter what corporation it was, it if it wasn't annihilated completely in a ball of flame, it was or would be a part of Marsco. This is um, 2.0 fact fiction. Eventually, it might actually become canon. Who knows? But it's it's a reasonable interpretation of the time. So the, the sincerely paranoid person could blame anything on Marsco up till about 50 AE or so. There's not much you can do with that in your campaign because it happened um, 700 years ago. 
But if you're running a historical game, like 1 to 200 or, or something like that, then the One Nation Under Mars banner might be quite strong and a real threat to outsiders and overwhelming to, like, mini-corps that were trying to find themselves. Or you have the type of table that would be amused and not upset at a slingshot around the sun to go save some whales or something. <laughs> so one of the canon um, conspiracy theories is that Marsco is run by humans or that Marsco is sleeping. And I think you can combine those two and uh, create sort of a once-in-future king idea of Marsco, uh, which I think of as waiting for the masters to return. Wait, wait, wait. I've got this. Marsco is sleeping, and humans are sleeping. Therefore, humans is Marsco. <laughs> humans certainly was Marsco. So, one of the seeds of this idea is Sentry, which is Marsco's guiding artificial intelligence. It was originally created to help Marsco. Um, the number three keeps recur recurring. Uh, it's the central trinary system. It was devoted to making sure that Soul advanced socially, technologically, and some other leg of the stool. I don't remember what. Um, economically, possibly? Financially. Yeah, financially. That These three pillars, or these three legs, kind of moved at the same rate, that nothing really accelerated too fast. So it was like a braking system for society, which is something Marsco is still doing to this day. But at some point in time, Sentry kind of faded away rather abruptly, um, about 20 AE or so. Uh, no one really knows why, but shortly thereafter, but shortly thereafter, the first three spin-off corporations, ASR, Genotype, and Pulse, manifested all at about the same time, um, I think 30 AE or so. So these two events kind of coincided pretty closely uh, during the time that humanity was being kind of forced into the margins. So what if Sentry is waiting to hear her master's voice once more? And like in uh, Rock and Rule, it just needs that magical harmonic, the, the thing that puts vectors to sleep, the, the unique tone that humans create that vectors don't tend to, to awaken its machinery, to resurrect itself from the grave, and make Mars Co's, make the Stinks' eyes open again. But it's got to be humans. I can back this one up. <laughs> I'm going to be cheating using books that haven't been published yet and may never be published. <laughs> but um, in 200 AE, or thereabouts, sometime in the second century after Earth falls, Phobos, the moon of Mars that's currently a giant spaceport and has weird things buried under the surface, was a genetics bank, a genetic archive and technological archive. And that's where a lot of, like, DNA seed stock was living. But later on, the human strains were smuggled out of there. No one knows where they are now. But that was all around um, kind of the, the end of the genotype period where the first major megacorp fell. It was eaten by mice. And the human DNA type was whisked away the company that was probably most able to recreate the human genome and as a real thing was eaten by, as the story goes, a brave rebellion of, of mouses from their tyrannical rat overlords. Um, you've said yourself that this is uh, probably too good to be true, Ashtar. And, and it mm -hmm. is. It's a good story. Um, and then uh, Pulse takes over, turning from... Soul's cheerleader to uh, the genetic, um, the provider of genetic therapy for for the system. Soul, uh, I say Solar Pulse. Pulse takes over as the medical corporation for Soul for a time until Progenitus takes over from it. Mm -hmm. Now, Pulse is the only of the three mega corporations that existed. We don't know about Genotype. Pulse is it's is its own thing. It is not controlled in any way, shape, or form by Marsco. Well, let's try that again. It's not directly controlled by Marsco. Uh, it's a spin-off corporation. ASR, in their deep lore, is still in some way slave to Sentry because their shadow president, spoilers, uh, is, is Sentry, is Marsco's primary artificial intelligence. So they are corrupted by this human structure, and Pulse is 
perhaps deriving its distrust from ASR over this specific instance. Mother Marsco always hates it when the children are squabbling. (laughs) (laughs) Using this as a campaign pillar, Marsco can become sort of an ancient temple sort of thing that's sending out questing knights to find the holy grail of the human genome, the blood of the one true king or whatever. Its agents might be like breaking into grottos and things like that, searching parallel realities, trying to find the voice that can reawaken their sleeping god. And when they do, uh, ASR is probably going to be the next to fall and Pulse will be trying to, well, Pulse will be the final vanguard of the like old corporations against the rising force of humanity. It's a theory. Hmm. It's an interesting theory. But that's more of like a alternate campaign reality than a, a simple urban legend. I mean, we've discussed a couple of times the epic level campaign or where epic level campaigns could go within the HSR universe. And that is a very good plot point for one. Sure, sure. Going in a, a different like Marsco alternate reading, um, this one is, again, very, very far flung and complex, but I've been kind of building on it for like three weeks now and I want to get it out of my system mm-hmm. so I can move on and go to my favorite corporation. Um, again, so many spoilers. In Sound and Silence, there's a lot of material on the idea of transcendence uh, and what that means. We talk about how transcendent technology originated maybe 500 years before we thought it did on in, in Terra. And that's where quill theory was, was found in an ancient Terran database. Uh, the owls were corrupted by transcendent energy somehow, and that's that's created that form of horror and all of the different like dark nexuses in Terran and soul's reality are linked together by these ripples of transcendent effect. The universe was fairly stable until such time as TTI started unlocking the great weirdness when um, they released, when they had really branched out into creating transcendent technology implants Soon we had uh, transcendent entities walking the streets and the spire building itself on Mars. It's kind of a genie in the bottle thing. When you let it out, you can't really retreat from that. And this is where you start getting again into very heavy spoilers, but you think you can retreat from that. There are transcendent implement or implants that theoretically are designed to take a snapshot at a point in time and then walk you back to that point in time. So you can take these wildly crazy and dangerous tests and then reset if everything goes catastrophically wrong. Well, that's going to be something we touch on rather heavily in TTI's uh, episode down the road. So maybe a year and a half from now. (laughs) It's kind of a foundational part of their myths and uh, how they can be both hero and enemy at the same time. So the Whisper Plague spreads like through blood and... We don't really totally understand how this dark energy drifts across soul, but there's strong hints that it follows this sort of ancient logic of the law of contagion and the law of similarity. The the whisper, uh, the other, the outside horror can infect a concept. Um, perhaps it can affect uh, a type of technology. Perhaps it can infect all of Terra's computer networks because they are similar in structure, if not directly connected. Similar in concept. Yeah. And perhaps someday if this darkness completely infects an entire world, it will make it more possible for it to infect the concept of worlds. If it can infect all of soul, then it will have infiltrated the concept of solar systems. And from there it expands and cannot be stopped. It spreads through metaphor. It spreads through like, like things affecting like if perhaps a, a CEO of a company fell under the other's sway, then that company would be infected in short order, not through direct connection, but simply through parallel likenesses. At the same time, though, this isn't necessarily a futuristic or a transcendent concept either no this is a very old and very baseline mm, i don't want to uh, superstitious but not quiet that that is kind of the 
fundamental understanding that underpins a lot of early alchemy and witchcraft. No, these are two of the strongest laws of magic. Um, there's a book, it's Practical Practical Magic and or the game book Practical Thaumaturgy, which are written <laughs> by, I cannot remember his name right the second, I've referenced him a few times now, but the a fellow who has a master's degree in thaumaturgy and is one of the better writers on the subject, where he outlines like 30 different laws of magic. There's contagion, like effects like... Um, the law of names of power and so on. And these are two of the single biggest ones and they contain so many other laws under their belts. But they are one of the ways in which the darkness behind HSD propagates itself. So, well, three. Because the law of names contain power also is very existent. It is a subset of the law of contagion, sir. <laughs> According to name of magician that I cannot remember right this second. <laughs> so imagining a positive role for Mars Co and a way to incorporate a lot of the kind of oddnesses in the game, such as the fact that I keep coming back to that foxes lay eggs in HSD, the huge number of ways in which vectors are unique for the sake of being unique, the like massive species diversity, the morphisms, the weird glowing squirrels, the thousands well, hundreds of species that exist across Seoul, this massive well of diversity that Terra could barely manifest in its heyday if you looked at all species, and certainly not all sentient species, and the, the weird corporate corporatocracy that really kind of defies reason, and it only exists if you assume a sort of bene a guiding force of some sort, benevolent or malevolent. Um, if you squint a lot and kind of look at reality sideways. Right. So here's a theory I have. It is Marsco is the ultimate firewall at the center of the universe. It controls the speed of technological advancement. It controls the speed of, socio of social advancement. It maintains laws of species diversity and maintains the MUT protocols, etc. All with the idea of creating a solar system that is as different from Terran society as I was going to say humanly possible. I'm not sure that's the right word. But in doing so, it prevents the spread by metaphor of the other and isolates it to just Terra. Because when you get beyond Terra, the world is so strange, it's teeming with foxes and bear people. There's no religion, there's no direct connection to the culture that created it. And that is Marsco's primary mission now is just to maintain this fierce firewall between itself and the other. And I think that's a very heroic role to cast Marsco in and explains its silence now and a lot of the strangeness in the game that just kind of otherwise is eh, more wish fulfillment and furry fantasy than anything else. That is a heck of a conspiracy theory. It's a really good one, I think. It makes TTI the enemy because they spawn uh, religious cults that want to reach out to the transcendent and they themselves try and connect with the transcendent. And in that way, they're creating a contagion line that will someday doom the entire solar system. And TTI is my like, least favorite corporation, so... <laughs> so obviously that's who you reach out to in my game when you're in trouble. <laughs> my character is not me, sir. <laughs> but I, I think the idea of just maintaining the walls of reality that's uh, like the Men in Black movie kind of has that too. The humanity's last line of defense against the weirdness is simply to reinforce reality as we understand it and keep keep drawing that knife blade across the glass to deepen the, the line that it leaves. And flashy pins. And flashing, Don't forget flashy pins. Flashing pins. Um, Marsco's strange non-hierarchy that is totally unnavigable also kind of becomes a part of this theory because it stops you from understanding its its root cause. It defies the kind of corporate structure you get on Terra, so it's a line that a line of metaphor that can't be necessarily jumped as easily between itself and its forebears and the corporate structures of Earth. I mean, you can find a lot a lot of strange things at Seoul and say, well this, this is the reason it happens if you wanted to kind of go down this road. Which I'm not encouraging you to do, but it is a it is an interpretation that might be fun. Uh, one last theory. I, I love the idea of Marsco as God, and I go off on it occasionally. Uh, I think that one of the HSD Discord chat people is working on an essay to share with us about um, flying space popes, and I'm very much looking forward to that one. 
the idea of Marsco as God is written into Marsco's um, corporate tagline, which is we are, which I, I think heralds back to one of the oldest names of God, I am. Um, and God was in a plural form at the, at the time of the Old Testament. So we are might be a very valid interpretation of that. I don't know my ancient Hebrew that well. But the God of the Old Testament is kind of crazy and kind of evil and malign. And uh, if that's what they're referencing with the I am, we are, then that's a very specific interpretation of God. Now, um, Sir Keanu Reeves, a uh, famous <laughs> Terran actor, <laughs> uh, his movie, The Matrix, touches on this a lot. Some people have compared it to the Gospel of John, which is a book used to instruct the Gnostic heresy that maybe they've gone the wrong way and that, you know, Judeo-Christian God is the way to go. Uh, the idea in both the Gospel of John and the Matrix is that this reality is messy and ugly, and that's largely because the powers that control it are dark, and you have to look beyond them to some higher power, some higher God. Now, going full Gnostic, one of the Gnostic heresy concepts is that the God of this world of the Old Testament is the Demiurge, which is not really God because it's kind of crazy and corrupt and of this earth. And so whatever's beyond it is much more important. So Marsco could become this kind of dark Demiurge idea. And the campaign arc you might draw from that is to see what's behind its wall, whether that's looking beyond the media false truths and true false true falsities that um, Marsco coughs up or whether it's beyond uh, the metaphorical walls of reality into parallel realms whatever it is Marsco is going to be the final enemy that you have to face before transcendence in however you define it in your campaign and that's spinning out like a two word phrase from HSD 1.0 into a full campaign arc but it's one that I've gone back to so many times hmm. I don't know that was there was so much deeper than I was going to go with referencing the Matrix. Uh, my my reference was going to be early on when when the agent was taunting Neo. He he let out that there were several previous Matrixes and they all crashed and failed horribly because they tried to make it too perfect and humanity just hated that and rejected the whole concept and so they had to make it kind of broken and miserable at times because that was the reality that humanity accepted. And as gamers, isn't that why we need dice? <laughs> there comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. Well, lacking any better transition, I say we move on to what's been cool this week. We Ashtar, have transcended transitions. Ashtar, I'd like you to lead with this one. Because I think your hero has been up to something. Cyborg dragons? So, no, he's left. He's transcended cyborg dragons now. Flamethrowers? Fla uh, we saw flamethrowers already. Boring tunnels? We're getting there. Has he been? He, he's really gone like full on mad science at this point. Making a crap ton of cars. Uh, that's that's very intense. Like, that's old like late Have 90s. you made a car in a tent? I feel like you're really going back to uh, last week. <laughs> well, let's go back to last week, actually. <laughs> Kid-sized submarines. Okay. You can spin from there. Clean water in every household. Wait. What year is this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Elon Musk has been turning himself slowly into Iron Man. Tony Stark. He hasn't built himself a suit yet. You don't know that. Cyborg Dragon what? <laughs> he, did he delete that tweet or leave it up? <laughs> I think it's still out there. Okay, excellent. I think he tried to say that it was referencing some sort of car, though. After he launched his own car into space, uh, he was going to build a submarine to rescue Thai children in a mine. There was some other, like, deep mad science moment this week as well. It's been a good week for him in terms of, like, profound mad science. F fixing the lead problem in Flint's water supply. That'd be a good one. Um, probably with cosmic rays or something like sure. that. Uh, an anti-lead ray. Or more subterranean tunnels. I don't know. He got more subterranean tunnels as a proposal in front of some city. I forget which. Hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, somewhere on the West Coast, right? Uh, somewhere East Coast, I thought. Oh. I know he's been working for L.A. for a while, but I think he got somewhere East Coast. 
You know, it's almost like we don't have these little personal computers that are networked everywhere in the world attached to our hips <laughs> that we can't just look up all of this information, but yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll humor each other for the moment. <laughs> this is a minor historical note, but I think it's really neat. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, Fear the Boot, is on episode 491, I think. They've been running since 2006, and this is... They're very, and at this point, they're very nearly the granddaddy of RPG podcasts. If there's any that have been running as long as them, it's going to be like in the ones and twos at that point. Um, nearly episode 500, which I think is just kind of amazing. Episode 487 or so is on playing yourself, which uh, after Corbo's confessional in the middle of this episode is something I want to go back and read over to see if they've got any ideas on how to avoid common pitfalls for that sort of gaming. It's something I've always discouraged people from doing, but it's kind of inevitable as well. It's a real quick reference to old, old um, superhero role-playing game, uh, Villains and Vigilantes, mm -hmm. where character creation starts off with the GM estimating what his player's stats should be <laughs> and telling them those. And then what they do is you, you modify the GM's interpretation of what your stats are to give it superpowers. Because a great way to start any game is for the GM to tell you how many points of charisma you have. One of my friend Samantha's favorite moments in our LARPing career together was that we were briefly running a game based on ourselves. I played a bitter Glasswalker kinfolk. And one of our friends, who's kind of one of those um, early college-age guys that's totally full of himself and will tell you so and probably has nunchuck skills, was busily writing the phrase combat reflexes on his character sheet. And she said no. He says yes. She said no. He said yes. And she threw a bottled water at him. And it bounced off his shoulder, and he marked off. <laughs> he struck through combat reflexes on his character sheet. That's an excellent test. Yes. So that's kind of neat. I'll link to a couple of their choice episodes. Again, going back to episode number two, the uh, episode on um, group templates, I think is a great place to make sure that your campaign doesn't immediately go off the rails. It's a good episode. One other thing I'm looking forward to in our near future is that Wines and I are working on a old-time radio script for our local furry con, oh, yeah. which will possibly replace episode 48 or so of this podcast, <laughs> Sure, <laughs> as it's going to be about an hour and a half long. We'll record it, and we're writing at least two of the scripts for it and a lot of the transitional material. So at the end of this episode, where I usually have a couple of bloopers, I will plug in the... Um, teaser reel we recorded for uh for it for our con the con is alamo city furry invasion it's going to be october 5th through 7th in san antonio in san antonio texas if you can make it there we'd love to see you we will have cookies maybe 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 not probably not probably actually not actually yeah it sounds good right no i think we're gonna to be too busy doing staff stuff to <laughs> uh find bake time for baked goods this time around i've, I've been laughing very hard at the uh the, the legal case fighting the patent on the pause button <laughs> but it's more the same all we do is kind of laugh bitterly and go on okay well sometimes that's all there is yeah so next episode i want to talk about a tangentially mars correlated concept which is family and hsd we'll see how that goes in the meantime ooh, plot devices no that's an asr specialty i think <laughs> In the meantime, uh, catch you outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Sirius Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Great, just brimming with pep and vigor. You've got that healthy glow. That's right, Tom. Since finding the modern secret to health and energy, I've got endurance that just won't quit. I can even see your bones glowing through your fur. What's your secret? I'll tell you, Tom. It's the new Utonium Tonic Water. <laughs> 
Wow, that bottle has a sickly yellow-green glow, just like you do. Every bottle of utonium is filled to the brim with science. And uranium. It puts the power of the atom into your body where it can go to work. Does it have anything to do with that second tail you grew, Bob? That's right, Tom. Interesting growths are another benefit. In addition to my stylish new tail, I also have this little head growing out of my shoulder that gives me advice while I sleep. Yes, I'll kill him. That's, um, I gotta go, Bob. Utonium tonic water, available now. Look for the lead bottle with control rods in it. Welcome to the KCFI Radio Adventure Hour. I'm your host, Barkin Arkin. Join us this week for the newest episodes of your favorite thrilling tales. The thrilling adventures of Professor Hugo Thimmelthorpe. The acoustic waves are counterbalancing the water's waveform. The river peril goes quiet. That's right, Dakari. Science once again is our salvation. Nini? Tales of hooved justice with the nightmare. Oh, rats, it's Nightmare! No, it's THE Nightmare, and I'm here to stop your reign of terror. Captain Buckley and rocket ship X-5. Helga, you have the helm. I'm strapping on my magnetic shoes and heading out there. Sir, but what? Boilers are starting to leak, sir. We've got steam all over the place down here. We have to shut them down now. Hold them steady, Fritz. The captain's about to do something foolish again. Ace Blackstone, P.I. Hold on. I recognize that name. You write for the papers. If you came here looking for a scoop, then you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm not here for the papers, Mr. Blackstone. I'm looking for my sister. This is the city. These are my case files. My name is Ace Blackstone, P.I. All this and more brought to you by Pretty Kitty Cat Leashes. Available in ten different colors, but we suggest red. Okay, that's a wrap. Are we paying royalties on this? 